Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. For the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful. Lord, we're not just thankful for things, we are thankful to you, the giver of all good things. You are a gracious and magnanimous God, and we have been the recipients of untold blessings from your hand. We would be so had we not even had Jesus, just having been given physical life and the rain falling on the just and unjust alike, enjoying all of the joys and delights that you have put in this world which you created. But then, superadded to all of those, you've given us the most marvelous gift, and that is of your Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life that we might be forgiven, who was cursed that we might be blessed, who died that we might live. We thank you, Father, for his resurrection, because in Jesus' resurrection, we too know that we'll be raised from death to life in him. We thank you so much for your marvelous blessings. Help us as we study your word this morning. Give us an attention to detail. Help us to see the big picture. Most of all, help us to see a grand vision of your son, Jesus. And may we be drawn to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Red, brown, yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. This is a well-known children's song but is it theologically accurate are we teaching our children truth how do we know is it just a guess is this just a piece of well-meaning sentiment or does it derive from something found in the pages of holy scripture well if we had no other proof in all the bible the event before us this morning alone gives proof of Jesus' love for children. The event is so important that three Gospels record it. And in the midst of an extremely busy earthly ministry, an itinerary full of all sorts of events, and the cross looming on the very, very near horizon, Jesus takes time to hold babies and to bless them. He not only receives these children, but embraces them and loves on them. Jesus is most likely in a house along his journey, his final journey to Jerusalem, when he's confronted by a group of concerned parents. Maybe this is the first parents' association meeting. And having heard of where Jesus is, These moms and dads come bringing their children. Now, it was customary for parents to come to rabbis asking them to lay hands on their children and bless them. So while it is possible that some of these might have come for specific reasons of healing, as we know that Jesus did perform many healings throughout his ministry, 
since the text itself doesn't mention any specific healing, most likely what's going on here, they literally are just bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them and pray for them and ask the Lord's blessing on them. Now, the fact that these parents come and they place their young ones into Jesus' hands says something about the parents' belief regarding Jesus. I don't know about you, but I know for me, we don't just put our kids in anyone's hands. And these parents came knowing something about Jesus. Speaking of which, all three of these accounts use the word paideia in the Greek, a word that's used to describe children of various ages in Jewish culture. Child was anyone who is 12 years or younger. So here we have 12-year-olds and younger being brought by the parents. Interestingly, though, you saw in Luke's account, the word babies comes up. That's because a different Greek word is used in Luke's account. Um, he uses paideia as well, but he also uses the word brephe, which is translated baby or infant. So we have not only young children, but even infants, newborns, being brought to Jesus this makes sense, especially when we hear that Jesus takes them into his arms. You have the picture of Jesus holding babies. Remember, this is just not very long at all before his crucifixion. And there Jesus is stopping everything, saying, bring the children to me. Let me hold them. Let me pray for them. Let me bless them. For this reason, this text has had a history of being used by some theologians to support paedobaptism. Those of you familiar with that term, come from that word paideia, uh, but here being translated by many as infant baptism. Some people who practice baptism of babies would point to this text for some proof. Our Presbyterian brethren in particular are fond of this text for that reason. They argue that Jesus' statement to not hinder the children and to let them come unto him has a particular application of not barring children from the ordinance of baptism. They argue that they baptize as an outward sign of the grace of redemption being extended to people of all ages. And they believe that infants are renewed by the Spirit of God according to their capacity of their age till faith finally takes its full-grown effect and form. Unlike Roman Catholics, they don't believe that baptism somehow erases original sin or puts them in some other type of standing that way with the Lord. But... They believe that this is somewhat akin to the practice of circumcision, which was done at eight days old for a Jewish boy when he was circumcised and kind of formally brought into the covenant community. These sorts of analogies are made. Now, in response, I just want to quickly mention this up front, and that's why I'm talking about it. It's plain to see that nothing in this text specifically mentions baptism. Okay, so someone who argues from this text for the practice of infant baptism does so without the text itself making that connection. To say that Jesus warmly welcomes children and that we ought to do the same should not be equated with we must baptize them. I see those as two separate questions or two separate issues. Further, it's clear that Jesus did not baptize any children on this occasion. At least there's no mention given of it. And some might argue that if Jesus wanted to put that practice down in place for the church in the coming ages, why didn't he do it right there and then? He would have established a practice that we could follow, but instead he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he holds the children, he blesses them and prays for them. Now, with that in mind, what happened on that occasion, I think, is better represented by something that we do practice as a church and that of the practice of baby dedications or family dedications. There's a long, long, long history of speaking blessing over children. You can see even this practice in the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Take a look at this in Genesis 9 and chapter 27, 28 and 48 and 49. You'll see repeatedly this practice of fathers blessing their children, speaking blessings over their children. But not only can parents speak blessings over children, but so can the gathered church and its leadership. When we have dedications, we're symbolically bringing our children to the Lord before the congregation. And we're all corporately reminded of our individual responsibility as parents to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, pointing them to Jesus Christ. We as the gathered people of Christ also take up the charge to aid parents in their sacred responsibility to speak truth 
and to provide encouragement and to show the love of Christ. The bottom line is what a blessing it is to be brought to Jesus from an early age. In this text, we had that physically going on. Children are being brought to Jesus from the earliest of ages. But what a tremendous gift it is to be told about Jesus from the earliest of ages. How many of you were raised in Christian homes? Can you raise your hand? If you were raised in a Christian home, your mom and dad talked about Jesus when you were young. Look at that. Look at the number of hands in this room that had that privilege. And what a joy it is for us to carry on that heritage. And for those who didn't receive it, you probably know all the more how special and unique and to be treasured that is. When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and identifies with him, it is then appropriate for there to be an outward sign of that inward reality. The reason why we practice believer's baptism happening after there is an expression of faith in an individual following the example we see throughout the New Testament. The passage we're looking at is quite short and it's to the point, but it brings up an important consideration for us all. Here's the question. How do we view children? How do we view children? Do we share Jesus's perspective of children? You see, the disciples, upon seeing this crowd of parents coming with their little ones, began shooing them away. They saw all these parents with their children and babies and I wonder just how noisy that scene was. And they saw it as an unwarranted interruption into Jesus' ministry. Jesus is doing ministry here. You parents and your little ones, shoo. Get out of here. Leave Jesus alone. Now this scene is quite disappointing. because, And Jesus responds with some holy anger here, with some indignation, we're told. For it hadn't been all that long prior to this occasion that Jesus had just provided his disciples with perspective, with his perspective on children. We read this in Mark chapter 9, verses 36 and 37. Jesus, taking a child, set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, his disciples, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. He said this in Matthew 18. He called the child to himself, set him before them. And he said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, in our modern context in America, Jesus' words might be taken for granted. We're used to the need, we're used to the idea of looking after and caring for children. However, it's important for us to note that Much of our country's concern for children is the result of Christianity's influence on Western civilization. Today, we see relief organizations appeal for support by showing pictures of little lives that have been disfigured by hunger and famine and disease and war all over the world. And so there's a widespread sympathy in many of our hearts for and tenderness towards children. Orphanages have been set up. And continue to be set up all over the world in an effort to help children who are without parents. Politicians will even invent photo ops where they can get pictures kissing babies and holding children. Even if they themselves could care less about children. Why? Because it looks good. Because it has at least a good appearance in our culture today. It might help their election hopes or so they think. I can't help but say, though, that anyone who genuinely loves children will protect them while they're in the womb as well. It's a gross inconsistency to say that you love children and meanwhile kill babies through abortion and say that you love them. I was just sent an email this last week from one of our church members asking me to sign a petition for the Life at Conception Act that's being introduced to Congress and advanced by Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. 
he mentions the statistic that since Roe v. Wade, our country has invented laws that have condemned 56 million babies to painful deaths without trial. For what reason? Merely because they were inconvenient. What's interesting about the bill that Rand Paul is advancing is that it proposes to answer the Supreme Court's question and their admission in Roe v. Wade that, quote, they were not in a place to be able to speculate and answer to the question, when does life begin? Listen to this. This is in Roe v. Wade. The court admitted that if the personhood of an unborn baby could be established, the right to abort collapses. For the fetus's right to life is then guaranteed specifically by the 14th Amendment. So what is Rand Paul trying to do with this bill through Congress? He's trying to legally define when does life begin. That's a very quick and easy answer. Science has known this answer for a long time. When does life begin? At conception. At conception. So all we have to do is define life as it really is biologically and scripturally. We just have to define it that way legally that life begins at conception. And guess what happens with Roe v. Wade? It's thrown out. Because the court said if it could ever be determined when this actually happens, you couldn't abort a child. Because if the child is a person, if the baby, if the fetus is a person, then we certainly can't deprive it of its right to life. I strongly encourage you to support this bill. Now, the societal climate of Jesus' day didn't hold children in high regard. Their attitude was much more akin to those who believe that childhood is a necessary evil. An unfortunate interim between birth and adulthood that we all have to go through. Something to be tolerated and traveled through as rapidly as possible. We noted last week how the Lord is particularly concerned with the plight of widows. We saw this in last week's parable. But also his concern for orphans. Because they are among the most disadvantaged people. And as a result, these people who are most vulnerable and most unprotected ought to be given full justice and care. And judges should be especially concerned about those people because it is those people that this sinful world loves to take the most advantage of. It's interesting that the next person we'll be introduced to in this narrative is going to be a rich, young ruler. And it seems the disciples did not erect any barriers to this rich, young ruler approaching Jesus. But they have a whole different perspective towards this group of parents with their children and babies. In any case, the disciples stand in the way of children being brought to Jesus, while Jesus, meanwhile, stands with open arms, welcoming them in, holding them, blessing them, praying for them. I believe this event is recorded, among other things, as a lesson to all of Jesus' disciples of the response that Jesus has to children and the response that is expected of all those who follow Jesus in their response to children. So let's explore this together in a sermon entitled, Jesus Loves the Little Children. My question for us is threefold. I have a, three questions for us to consider and to contemplate. First, we'll ask this question. Are we hindering children? Are we hindering children? We'll then look at, are we helping children? And then thirdly, are we becoming children? But are we hindering children? Why might someone hinder children? I wonder what were the particular reasons going through the disciples' minds on this occasion as they were obstructing the path of these young ones to get to Jesus. Why would they put up roadblocks in the coming, in these little ones coming unto Jesus? Perhaps we might ask the same question, though, of adults today. Certainly there are those who do not believe in Jesus. So we can understand why they would obstruct the path of little ones to Jesus. Because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't love Jesus. We know their teaching and example will actively and or passively dissuade children from coming to Jesus. We're not surprised that the science done by atheists promotes evolution as fact. From the goo to the zoo to to you. And denies the truth of creation. And that every person is formed and fashioned by the hand of God made in his image. 
We're not surprised that public schools funded by general tax dollars are not making active plans to see students love Jesus and walk close to him. We're not surprised by those things. But the hindrance that we're considering here is that of those people who were following Christ. (laughs) These disciples of Jesus are the ones putting hindrances or roadblocks or barricades up in the pathway of these little ones. Why? What was going on in the disciples' minds? Well, perhaps not having been given the specific reason gives us opportunity to consider what reasons in general might people hinder children from coming to Jesus. And note, some of these might be purposeful and some of them inadvertent. Some of them might have been on purpose, while others might be things that are developed out of custom or habit or inactivity. Well, first of all, let's ask the question, could it have been jealousy? I mean, were the disciples jealous of their position before Jesus and they didn't want to share him with anyone else? I mean, it's possible that they don't want anyone else crowding in on Jesus for selfish reasons. Maybe they just wanted to exert some sort of influence, considering themselves to be the gatekeepers or the bouncers as to who is able to see Jesus. However, noting the rest of the gospel accounts and seeing the great variety of people that approach Jesus, the disciples aren't super stringent about this in general. So there must have been something, some thought in their minds that specifically excluded masses of children being brought to Jesus. Somehow they were not appropriate to an audience with their master. So what reason might they offer? What made children different than others? Well, let's put forward a couple of ideas. Perhaps they thought that children are too insignificant to bother Jesus with. Children are just too insignificant. I mean, children are, after all, quite small. They aren't the movers and shakers of society. They have little to no power, little to no authority. They aren't in the position to shape public policy. And they can't provide any financial support. If you're trying to run for office, ultimately, the babies aren't going to elect you in. Children can't vote here in America. Why why care about them? They're insignificant. As we've already noted, the rich young ruler seems to have no problem approaching Jesus, a man of financial means, a man of some amount of power and prestige. Oh, yes, this is the type of person that should see Jesus. Sometimes we seem to fall into the same trap today when we, we wish and pray and hope for the salvation of celebrities and neglect the children around us. But if coming to Jesus is dependent upon our significance, let me ask this question. What hope do any of us have of getting an audience with him? What makes someone significant? What grants someone significance? According to Isaiah chapter 40, listen to this picture. God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth. And you know what he thinks about its inhabitants? They're as grasshoppers. They're as Grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. Listen, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Well, that's an interesting word. Synonymous to insignificant, huh? He can take those in the highest powers and make them all but insignificant. If this is the way of it, if there is none to whom we can liken God that we would be God's equal, if we lift up our eyes on high and see the one who created the stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Okay, we can make some relative judgments about who has more power or authority among men. But when you think about the greatness of God, what is man's significance? Or as the psalmist says it in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, when we think about the greatness of God, then all of a sudden you take your most powerful ruler ever who's been here on the earth. And what is he in comparison with the one who creates the stars? 
and calls them all by name. And they exist because of his power. All of a sudden we realize just how small we all are. You see, I'm glad that my meeting with Jesus was not dependent on me being something of significance. Because otherwise there'd be no hope for me. You see, our hope is not found in our significance, but in realizing that God cares about the littlest of things. Matthew 10, Jesus said, Do not fear those who can kill the body and are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I love that statement. It's just like such a humbling statement to you. I mean, it's a wonderful, loving statement, but it's also humbling. You're, don't worry. You're more important than many sparrows. God cares about the smallest. You see, what we find out and what we discover is something that is just completely mind-blowing. That this great and all-powerful God, who made everything out of nothing by the sheer word of His power, who calls the stars by name, also tells us that He knit us together in our mother's wombs. That He knew us before we were even born. That the very hairs of our head are numbered. If this God... If this is who God is, then certainly He cares for us. How dare any of us communicate to a child that they're not valued by Jesus because they're not as significant as someone who's an adult. Okay. So maybe it's not their relative worth that's at issue. But how, maybe what's at issue here is the disciples know how children spend their time. Maybe that's what caused them to push these children away. Children are too frivolous. But you're frivolous. I mean, don't children demonstrate great childishness? They focus on matters which are so vain and fleeting. Have not all of us marveled that children could be enamored by, with momentary things? Toys and trinkets that break within hours of use become the, the desires and heartbeat of children? Certainly you have, at some point in your life, Either had your own children or be with other, been with other children or notice other children who've been enamored with the claw. And their desire and need to get some piece of junk toy out of that machine to such an extent that they would put untold amounts of quarters and dollars into the machine to get out something that wasn't worth the first quarter they put in. And will probably break within moments. Maybe the disciples have issue with this because they know how children are. They're so childish. I can't help but ask the question, are adults any better? Are not men and women just as frivolous, just on a grander scale? Don't the toys just become more expensive? How many of us have been playing around with matters that have eternal significance? You see, the whole world is largely given to folly. How many of us are guilty of wasting time on passing things? How many of us have put our, put our heart upon things that will break within moments, that will wear out or be outdated in no time at all? You see, if this was the standard, that you couldn't ever engage in any frivolity, then guess what? All of us are also excluded. Because we all fail that test as well. Well, maybe it's because children are so forgetful. Maybe that's the issue. I mean, children, you know, they have short memories. They won't be impressed by how very important Jesus is. I mean, do they understand whose presence they're coming into? You know, if I had a lot of my, my children and I was going to, you know, meet the president, would they recognize the office of the president? Would they really understand what was going on there? Perhaps the disciples believe this to be a waste of time that could be given to those who recognize the full gravity of meeting with Jesus. I chuckle at this, though, as well. Don't men and women have a hard time remembering? Have you ever had, any, had to have anyone repeat to you something that they've already told you? Have you ever had to be reminded of things 
Don't all of us at times find ourselves looking into a mirror and immediately forgetting who we are as soon as we walk away? And consider the fact that as we grow older, most of our fondest memories and most cherished memories are typically from our earliest days. Isn't it fascinating? As we get older, typically what happens is we kind of forget everything that happens between 20 and 85 and seem to remember back to the youngest of days. The memories of childhood have a much more profound impact upon us than we usually give them credit. And I myself find my young children remembering things that I have forgotten. Let's not be so quick to make judgments about children's memory. Oftentimes their memory far exceeds our own. Well then, what do we point to? I mean, maybe it's their inadequate ability. Children aren't as accomplished as adults. They lack experience in living. Their abilities aren't as finely tuned. But what lack of ability would hinder them from coming to Jesus? Well, could we put forward the idea that maybe they have a difficulty in believing? Are children too young to exercise faith? Well, the purpose of this morning is not for me to engage in an extensive discussion regarding how old does a child need to be in order to demonstrate saving faith. I dare say that it's often much younger than we think. In most cases, a child's ability to believe supersedes that of an adult, for their believing faculty hasn't been worn down by this fallen world full of unbelief and falsehood. It reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, their belief in God wasn't called into question until the serpent entered the scene and introduced doubts and spoke lies to Eve. Does our experience grant us greater ability to believe? Not always. Increased experience doesn't necessarily mean more faith. In fact, it's usually children that we look to when we consider genuine examples of true trust, sincere belief without hypocrisy. In fact, if we had two people who were right here before us sharing their testimony and their words were roughly the same and one was a six-year-old and one was an 80-year-old, I'd have the tendency to say that the six-year-old has less possibility of guile and deception and hypocrisy than the 80. So is it that they have a difficulty believing? Is it that they have a difficulty in repenting? I mean, are they too young to experience true contrition? Is that what's going on here? Meanwhile, have we not all witnessed children who demonstrate genuine conviction, sorrow, and remorse over their sin? Are there not children who recognize that their major fault is with God and who repent more quickly than a great many adults who are hardened in their sin? Something very precious and dear in seeing children go through genuine repentance. I get to see quite a bit of that here at the school. As I counsel with students, there's something very, very precious about students who recognize their fault, admit their sin, and repent toward God. Is it belief? Is it repentance? Is it understanding? I mean, maybe it's just that the gospel's too difficult to grasp. The young can't get it. The young don't get Jesus. Is that the issue? Well, While it's definitely true that the gospel has a depth of which we will never dive to the bottom of, it's also true that the gospel is simple enough for even the tiniest person to wade out into it and to be refreshed. You see, if perfect knowledge of the deep things of God were necessary for salvation, how many of us would be saved? You see, the gospel is not a matter for ivory tower scholars to debate ad infinitum but simple truth for simple people to believe. And while Jesus Christ is meat for men, he's also most certainly milk for babes. Ultimately, it seems that what the disciples' objection reduces to is children are not adults. That's the issue. They're just not adults. In other words, they're young. They're not old enough. They're not grown enough. They're not big enough to be granted time with Jesus and to be blessed by him. Or so they think. I think, guys, this is what makes Jesus' response so fascinating. 
What does Jesus do with the disciples? He absolutely turns the tables. What Jesus ends up saying to them is, you're right. Children are not adults. But it's not the children who are in need of change. It's the adults. Children don't need to become as men to become to come to Jesus, but men need to become like children. As it relates to the blessing of God in and through Jesus Christ, the problem is not in children needing to grow up, but in men needing to grow down. More on this in a few moments. But the whole scenario brings to our attention a huge warning. And this is the warning, friends. Beware of assumptions. Beware of assumptions, particularly beware of assumptions when it comes to what Jesus wants or desires. We're on shaky ground anytime we make guesses about what pleases God rather than listen to what he has already told us through Revelation. Jesus had already instructed the disciples about his care for children. He used them already as an illustration to them and talked to them about receiving children. And now here, the disciples, for whatever reason, make an assumption that Jesus is not to be bothered by these babies and children. And Jesus has some strong correction for them as a result. John Calvin refers to the example of the Roman Catholic Church, which believes to be conferring great honor upon Jesus by bowing down to bread. By this, what Calvin is referring to is the transubstantiation belief in the Catholic Church that the bread of the Lord's Supper becomes the Eucharist by the blessing of the priest and that it's actually the body of Christ. And then, therefore, they worship the Eucharist as Jesus. And what Calvin is saying here is he's saying they think this is somehow honoring Jesus when in reality it's an abomination. That bread is not Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice is not an ongoing thing. It's a once-for-all thing. Completely finished and done with at Calvary. Again, Calvin says, because the popes do not think it sufficiently honorable for Jesus to perform the office of an advocate for us, they made themselves innumerable intercessors, but in this way deprived Jesus of his honor as mediator. In other words, whatever your motivations are, if you strip from Jesus what is rightly his, and you put in its place something that is not correct, not theologically accurate, you are not doing anyone a favor. You see, we act in similar ways when we tell people things like, a loving God would never send people to hell, thereby insisting upon our own definition of love, making no mention of God's holiness and righteousness, and ignoring the scriptures which speak of a coming judgment, and that all those who are not in Christ, that they will face that judgment and find eternal punishment. Beware of making Assumptions, don't do it. Stick instead to what God has revealed about himself. Those are reasons why these hindrances might come up. What kind of hindrances must be removed? Let me give you just a quick sampling. Just something for you to brainstorm about, contemplate, think through, pray about. We don't know the exact nature of the hindrance that the disciples were putting in front of these parents and their children. We don't know if they physically stood in their way. We don't know if they were just shouting at them. We don't, we don't know what they were doing. But maybe that lack of specifics, again, provides us with an opportunity to brainstorm a variety of ways in which hindrances might arise, that we might do away with them. For example, the obstacle of selfishness. Parents and adults in general, we may, out of desires for selfish pursuits, fail to give children time and attention. We may fail to bring them to our Savior because we're busy and preoccupied with other things. You see, we must be willing to sacrifice things that don't ultimately matter for the internal, the eternal investment that can be made in children. We must love children more than ourselves. I mean, that's ultimately what the, our big struggle is, right? Our tendency is to love ourselves first, others second, God last. And we've got to flip that whole thing on its head. Loving God first, others second, ourselves last. How about the obstacle of idolatry? We might put an obstacle in the 
path of our children coming to Christ and that of idolatry. There are many barriers that we can put up in front of children. One of the worst that we can do is to play to idolatrous fascinations in a child's heart. And this can happen very subtly. I don't assume many of you have household gods made carved out of pieces of wood or stone in your houses. I doubt you do. And if you do, please let me know so we can talk. But idolatry can spring from a number of different directions. For example, we can raise children to love stuff more than God. And we can do this by inundating their life with materialism. Sure, that's one way we can do it. But there are even more subtle ways. Ted Tripp does a good job of explaining this in Shepherding a Child's Heart. But we can pull on heartstrings and seeking obedience by appeal to giving or taking away stuff. What we've done is we've identified what your heart really wants is not to obey God and to submit to me as your parent. But what you really want is TV. So we'll just manipulate your heart idol to get the obedience we want. And we'll never address, really, what's really here at stake is you love TV more than you love God. You love TV more than you desire to honor your parents. So there's very subtle ways in which we can allow idols to prop up in our children's hearts. And when that happens, we need to help them and not hinder them, not reinforce those wrong patterns of thought. The obstacle of selfishness, the obstacle of idolatry. How about the obstacle of bad example? You see, our walk is as as important as our talk. And truth and priorities are most often caught rather than they are taught. Children will learn what is most valuable in this life by the example that you set. If scripture, prayer, praise, thanksgiving, and service are all important, then they're going to be seen in your daily routine. If giving money unto the Lord's work is important, then your children will see you giving. If talking about Jesus is important, then your children will see you sharing the gospel with others. If worship is important, then they'll see you singing in places other than just church. They'll see you singing in the car praises to God. They'll hear you singing praises to God from the shower. They'll experience you living for God's glory. You see, children are quite good at detecting a fraud over the long haul. You might trick them for the short time, short term. But over the long haul, they'll know what was valuable to mom and dad. And they'll know what's valuable to this church. There's also the obstacle of worldliness. It's far too easy to give in to the pressing matters of this world and fail to focus on the world to come. Parents and Christian adults have to sound a continual reminder to children regarding the importance of the soul and the importance of considering eternity, not just the here and now. And the way you combat that, guys, is not by just giving a bunch of rules. Don't think about this world. Don't think about this world. But presenting to them a glorious vision of the world to come. Help them focus their hearts and minds on heaven. Present a glorious vision of the world to come and God's plan for our place in this world as aliens and strangers in the present. To direct their hearts and minds to a contemplation of things that are not earthly but heavenly in nature. That they would store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Last and certainly not least, because I think it's one of the more subtle of obstacles or hindrances we can put in a child's life. Something that has really become a matter that I've become more and more concerned about. Something that Justin's really been hugely instrumental in our church's worship and consideration of this concept and how do we combat this is the obstacle of moralism. You see, sometimes even from good motives, we can be a source of stumbling rather than helping people come to Jesus. For example, if we're teaching Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, and we're teaching that to our children in Sunday school or at home in a family devotional, and the lesson that we're pushing for by the end of the passage is this, that we want our children to learn how to share. Look at what Jesus did when this boy shared. Now you go out and be good sharers. 
If that's the point of the passage, then we've missed out on a glorious opportunity to talk about Jesus. We focus children on human actions rather than the power of Jesus. We don't want to produce children who define themselves by what they do, but by whose they are. So we have to take every advantage of every opportunity to point Jesus to see their need for a Savior and speak of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. The glorious moment of that is the miracle. God is creating. Jesus is creating bread and fish. He's doing something that only God can do. And he's supplying the sustenance of the people there. Don't give children rules and attempt to build their self-righteousness. Instead, endeavor to help them see their lack of righteousness and their need to go to Jesus, the one and only Savior. Do not erect hindrances in their life to going to Jesus, but instead help them. So here's my second question. Are we helping children? Are we helping children? And we can further Explain this by first asking the question, why should we help children? Why should we help children? If you wish to follow Jesus, that's my first answer, you're going to respond to children as he did. If you say that you're being Christ-like, then you're going to treat children the way that Jesus treats children. And if you don't, you're not following Jesus. Jesus commands, do not hinder them. Let them come. He says it negatively, don't hinder them. And then he says it positively, let them come. Don't hinder them, let them come. And we're told that Jesus becomes indignant with the disciples. This phrase is the same response that Jesus had, get this, for the Jewish leaders who were perverting the law in the temple. When Jesus grew indignant and got a whip and came into the temple and cleared out the temple of all the money changers and everything else, same phrase being used to describe Jesus here. He has a holy anger against his disciples. Again, it reminds us of Luke 17, too. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he would cause even one of these little ones to stumble. Why should we help children? Because Jesus does. Why should we help children? I think also because far too often children are underestimated. They're considered less important. But what a wondrous opportunity we have to invest in the next generation. Spurgeon said it this way. A little error injected into the ear of a youth may become deadly in the man when the slow poison shall at last have touched a vital part. Weeds sown in the furrows of childhood will grow with the young man's growth, ripen in his prime, and only decay into a sad corruption when he himself declines. On the other hand, a truth dropped into a child's heart will bear fruit, and his manhood shall see the results of it. A child listening in the class to his teacher's gentle voice may develop into a Luther and shake the world with a venomous proclamation of the truth. Who among us can tell? How many of us know what God will do with the next generation? How many of us know what God will do with our children? Proverbs 22.6 Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. You see, since we don't believe that children are cosmic accidents, but instead specially created in God's image, We have a completely different perspective on the value of children. They are persons to be loved and cared for and trained and taught. Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You see, every human being, no matter their age, color, language, nationality, are loved by God and valued as made in His image. And there is something truly marvelous about hearing children declare the greatness and supremacy of God. Christian parents who have children who have come to know Christ, isn't it glorious to see them and hear them talking about Jesus, sharing the gospel with their friends? I had this wonderful moment just a couple of weeks ago. The school decided for boss's day to send me away for three days. I don't know if that meant that they want me gone from here or what. 
But it was a glorious mini vacation for my wife and myself. Everybody chipped in towards that. But probably the best thing about the whole event was right before they presented that to me, the uh, Mrs. Staggs, who's our administrative director, came to the front and asked all the students in front. It was right here at our morning assembly. Asked them a question. Had happy bosses day on the screen here behind and asked the question, who's the boss here at Orca? And the response, God. Oh, I was rejoicing in the back. That's absolutely right. I know we all rejoice when we see children rightly understand their place in this world. What are some helps that we might provide? Let me just give a couple practical suggestions for home and then a couple practical suggestions for here at Orb. Here's a few practical suggestions for home. I'm not doing rocket science here. Like, oh, I knew all those already. Okay, well, let this be a reminder. Let this be a reminder. Read the Bible to them. Read the Bible to your children. Make sure that that takes a prominent place in your interactions with them. Read the Bible to them. Teach them theology. Teach them theology. There's a book by Bruce Ware called Big Truths for Young Hearts. Some of you have the book. It's a great book. What's really cool about it, the very, very beginning is a foreword by Bruce Ware's daughters. And they said that they proposed that the title of the book should have been Bedside Theology. Why? Because the book arose out of their dad spending time with them while they were young, talking to them about God. He went through all the traditional categories of systematic theology, but did it on a child's level. And then later, after much pressure from his daughters and his wife, he went about writing these things down. A great book for you to get if you don't have it. Big truths for young hearts, Bruce Ware. But make discussing God a priority. May God be at your dining room table. May discussions about the Lord be present on family trips. Purpose to bring up discussions. Ask questions. Engage in dialogue. Also pray for them and with them. Pray for your children and with your children. And sing of the greatness of God with them. Never grow tired of calling children to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. Don't depend on a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor, although these individuals should be engaging in these sorts of things. You as parents, take it upon yourself. Make this a common, everyday thing. Help students or your children, help them connect failure with an opportunity to find grace in time of need. Provide them with loving discipline. Provide them with loving discipline. And love and serve them. Love and serve them. Here's a couple of practical suggestions for us as a congregation at Oak Ridge Reformed Baptist Church. Here's something that we all can do. Whether you're signed up for a spot every week or not, here's something we all can do. Make it a priority to welcome and greet children in our church. Just like you would another adult. How's your week been? How's school going? How are you doing in your relationship with Jesus? I think all of us can maybe even make better use of our time of fellowship lunch together, making sure that those are interactions like those. You can also do things like sign up to teach Sunday school. We have a great curriculum we're using, Generations of Grace. Sign up to teach Sunday school for the purpose of investing in the next generation. Sign up to teach one of our Q&A classes or be a sub or rotation on the rotation for us. It's such a delight to hear our children reciting spiritual truths and applying those rightly. I was going over a couple with my daughter the, just last night and it was glorious to hear her answering some of these question and answers. Sign up to help with VBS, family camp. Assist in our nursery, love on babies, care for them, pray for them, asking the Lord's blessings on them while you're with them there. Or maybe even think about teaching at a Christian school. Have the joy of coming into a classroom that is dedicated to the glory of God from start to finish and everything in between. 
Those are a few suggestions. Third, let's reflect on this last question. Are we becoming children? Are we becoming children? And as we've started all of these, let me ask you another why question. Why we must become children? Why must we become children? Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, there's some interpretive options on this. Is Jesus saying that all children are members of God's kingdom, no matter what? Is Jesus referring to the faith demonstrated by the parents? In other words, the kingdom of God belongs to the People such as these, the these being a reference to the parents, not the children. Some have made that argument. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying is that children illustrate something about true saving faith. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to such as these. They are illustrative of those who enter into God's kingdom. What does Jesus mean that we must receive God's kingdom as a child? We must receive God's kingdom as a child. Otherwise, you will by no means enter. You will never, ever, 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 ever enter if you don't receive the kingdom of God as a child. Well, there are some qualities in children that we can see as desirable. They're often in a state of awe and wonder at God's world and work. I mean, why do parents love going to like cheesy theme parks and going to a zoo that they've seen 800 times? Why? Because when you're with your kids, there's a whole new awe and wonder about the experience. You experience giraffes now through your kids' eyes. You now want to see those rhinoceroses because they're looking for them. And you can't wait to see how they see them. There's an awe and wonder in children about the world all around them. Somehow they can bring back the joy of discovery to us as adults. For some reason we allow awe and wonder to sometimes just become commonplace when it's not. That is a wonderful quality about children. Another wonderful quality of children is that they're ready to love and to be loved. There are no strangers with kids. We have people come to our door selling all kinds of stuff. My kids, I have to like hold them back if they want to go and hug the legs and arms of these complete strangers. I don't know who these people are, and my children are clamoring at the door. We had to have big rules. Okay, everyone goes to their room while daddy answers the door. They're ready to love and to be loved. They're trusting. I think the most important thing, though, is this idea of simple dependence. Children, especially babies, know utter dependence. Just as a nursing baby hungrily receives milk from his mother, so we can only admit our total need and depend upon the sustenance that God provides. Walking in humble dependence upon God is a prerequisite for entrance into God's kingdom because it is the mainstay of every moment in God's kingdom. That's how it all works. Everything's dependent on Him. You see, the element of children which Jesus points to here is not their assumed innocence or assumed purity or assumed virtues, but the sheer fact that they're children. It's not what children have done, but who Jesus is. It's not who children are, but what Jesus has done that matters. How do we know this? Because children are not innocent. If children were innocent, none of them would ever die. If they could be admitted to heaven by their purity, then the curse of death shouldn't have any hold on them either. No, as a consequence of being born of fallen parents, children inherit the guilt of Adam. The imputed sin which makes us die also prevents us from believing anyone enters heaven by personal innocence because none of us are personally innocent. They are likewise not saved by good works, for they have done none. So what is it about children that makes them so excellent as illustrations of entering God's kingdom? The only way in which a child is saved is by God's grace. He has nothing to offer of his own intelligence or ability. He has no merit or power of his own. It's purely a matter of free grace. You see, to receive God's kingdom is to become a benefactor of something that you have no claim to. You can take no credit for And you have no clout in. Jesus explains, those who enter the kingdom of God must come as children because they must come as they are. Small, powerless, without sophistication, overlooked, marginalized, dispossessed. The most striking thing about children 
is there complete neediness. And so it is for everyone who enters into God's kingdom. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are stripped of self-righteousness. We are in utter need of salvation. Yet wonder of wonders, it is precisely the insignificant whom Jesus loves. First Corinthians chapter one says this. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world and despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You see, beware of seeing someone's value on the basis of your perception of their ability to contribute to this world. Appearances may be deceiving. And that's most notably seen in the gospel and the incarnation. You see, Jesus rebukes the disciples' actions to bar entrance for these children because their behavior stands contrary to the purposes of God. The inbreaking of God's kingdom undermines and supplants conventional rules of honor and status. Value systems are completely flipped on their head. This is most notably seen in the fact of Jesus' incarnation and crucifixion. Who would have ever dreamed that this would be the means of God's work of redemption? But this was precisely the means by which God would save the world by sending his eternal son to earth. You, you guessed it here as a baby. Who would grow up and one day give his own life in the place of sinners. If there's anyone who could have skipped over childhood. It was Jesus. He could have just appeared fully grown. But he didn't. And then he continued to show love and care for children throughout his ministry. And so must we. You see, Jesus isn't demanding anything from us that he himself hasn't done for us. He commands us to become as children so we can enter into his kingdom. But this is only possible because he became a child before us. Here's the most amazing news. In the incarnation, in the wonder of wonders, Jesus became a child for us. And if Jesus did this and showed such love and care to children during his earthly ministry, we can be assured that he continues to care for them from where he is at present, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he's been exalted to after, after having been raised from the dead. You see, we can rejoice in the consideration that our children can be brought to Jesus from the earliest years and find a Savior who loves them. We're not engaging in a fool's errand when we teach our children to sing Jesus loves me. And when we teach them to sing Jesus loves the little children of the world. Kids who are in this room, some of you, this is addressed right to you, directly to you. You understand, kids, that these messages are just as much for you as they are for your parents. Jesus does love you, children. And he desires that you come unto him. Do not wait for some time when you're grown up to repent and believe in him. Come early so you can give him not only your adult years, but also your childhood years. These are years which the Lord can use for his glory in your life. He made each and every one of you, as he's made all of us, for his own glory. To come to Jesus and find a Savior who will take you up in his arms and bless you both now and eternally. Adults, there's a message for all of us here too. You need to learn from the children in this congregation. We all must humble ourselves and admit our lack and put away our self-righteousness and acknowledge our sinfulness and plead for mercy and grace from Jesus Christ. Only empty hands will be filled. So come with empty hands, ready to receive. You see, far from nuisances to be shunned, children are God's gift to their parents in the Christian community. They should be embraced and helped and prayed for and taught and treasured and learned from. Each family should picture that 
Every congregation of Jesus Christ should picture that. We should make sacrifices for our children. We must welcome children of all ages. That means far more than the modern church movement's plan to just set up a program for all children to to fly through. It means each one of us warmly greeting and welcoming and training and loving the next generation out of a love and heart for them, just as our Savior has a heart for them. Those who have been received by Christ as dear children will share His heart for children. It's been noted Every kingdom has children in it. But the subjects in God's kingdom are all children. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the much needed instruction that your word gives us regarding children and our need each to become as children to enter into your kingdom Lord, help us to recognize what a glorious thing it is to be a child in your kingdom. There is no greater thing than that, Lord. And help us to value and love and care for children all around us as you do, Jesus. Thank you for the blessing of children. Whether we ourselves have our own children or whether we just have the privilege of investing in other children, Help us to not take full advantage of that opportunity to point them to Jesus, the one and only Savior. Pray all this in His name. Amen.